To folks on the outside who are not familiar with cannabis, the medicinal qualities of the plant can appear overblown in a pipe dream, quite literally. And they are right that most of us talk about cannabis as a panacea because it does offer relief from so many bodily ailments. And those folks say, how can one herb fix so many things in a human? That simply cannot be true. But the thing is that cannabis really only does one thing. It balances and strengthens and interacts with the body's endocannabinoid system. Balancing and activating that one system is a very big deal though, because the endocannabinoid system touches all the other mission-critical systems in the human body. At the same time though, not all humans react to cannabis in the same way. By now, most cannabis users understand how completely the terpene profile controls the quality of euphoria that cannabis gives us when it's smoked or vaped. And terpenes themselves influence humans in differing ways, which is why some folks can smoke any and all equatorial cultivars while I have to be really picky with mine or I get a racing heart that I find dysphoric. We all have our very own personal and individual relationship with cannabis. All of this is to say that cannabis helps the endocannabinoid system of all humans, but which cannabis cultivar used in which way and at which dose are all variable from human to human. It really makes me cringe to see cannabis folks arguing on social media about some patient's dosing protocol because to really understand how best to administer cannabis to a patient really takes a pretty in-depth patient intake or some advanced self-awareness and self-diagnosing. Folks are usually arguing as if dosing is the same for everyone and it very much isn't. Whole plant cannabis medicine is a great tool, and we need to recognize how to use it is dictated to a large degree by the physical health, nutrition, expectations, mental health, and experience with cannabis that the patient has. Every cannabis patient is different and deserves to be treated uniquely. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Lose. My guest today is Dr. Chris Spooner. Dr. Spooner is a naturopathic doctor with 20 years clinical experience with specialties in gastrointestinal and integrative medicine, among others. He has been a board member and vice chair of the College of Naturopathic Physicians of British Columbia since 2008. Dr. Spooner is presently on the medical advisory boards of several integrative care and cannabis companies. Even with all of that, Chris still keeps an active private clinical practice at Paradigm Integrative Medicine, helping real people every day. Today we're going to discuss the wide range of variables at play in the human body to consider when making cannabis recommendations. During the first set, we talk about those body variables and how unique each human is when it comes to cannabis medicine. During the second set, we review the analytical tools and tests we can use when performing a patient intake or serious self-diagnosis. And in the third set, we talk about easy-to-access whole foods that you can eat to support a thriving endocannabinoid system. Welcome to the show, Chris. 
Hey, Shango, great to be here. Thanks. Thank you. So let's start by giving everybody a really good idea of the variables at play when discussing the use of cannabis medicine. You know, humans are not at all the same, even though textbooks about the human body and the discussion of the endocannabinoid system may suggest that they are. So so let's start. Would you please give us a sense of the variety of health variables that could potentially impact the use of cannabis medicine? and should be considered when choosing how best to use cannabis to relieve ailments? Sure. Super interesting question, you know, and this definitely falls within kind of, you know, my, my integrative medicine, functional medicine, naturopathic medicine approach. And, and I don't, uh, you know, this is an approach that I use pretty much with all my patients, whether it be cannabis medicine or, or not, you know, and essentially, you know, what we're really trying to do is, is recognize that, you know, you've got individual patients. And I, I think one of the challenges that we have with medicine right now is, is that, you know, we're, we're using evidence-based medicine, we're trying to protocols and standardization part of it. And, and, and what we've forgotten is, is that we're kind of creating medicine by average. You know, I was just having this conversation with a patient yesterday, I was showing them some a, a data set, you know, and some slides saying, okay, well, you know, and here's this nice graph line down the, the middle of it, you know, but you know, when you take a look at the number of points, data points that are actually on the, the best fit line, there's only four and the other 150 or above or below. So that starts to become something that's become a real sort of foundation on how I work, you know, with with patients on this, which is, you know, we need to recognize and we've got to really dig into these unique aspects of patients, you know, and so, you know, when I start off, there's a couple of things that I take a look at first and foremost, and, and you know, it's sort of a base of a pyramid and which ones, the, you know, the, each one sort of successively builds on the next. And so, you know, to me, uh, you know, optimizing nutrition is is got to be key in this right you know and so you know i think that you know when you start looking at the cannabinoids and the endocannabinoids in particular you know all of these things are, are basically you know built off fats you know in our body and so you know our our you know the macronutrient part of it you know the omega-3s omega-6 you know saturated fat status of our diets becomes really really important you know, because I think we need to remember the endocannabinoid system is a, a homeostatic regulatory system, right? Which means that, you know, you can only push it so far versus the other. It's actually a balancing thing. So if we're trying to create a super intense therapeutic effect on it, I think we're going to cap that out at, at both, you know, both ends of that along the continuum of, you know, one extreme versus the other. So we need to look at ways to build capacity um, within that and try to unload it so that we allow the endocannabinoid system to balance as opposed to push. Before, so, before you move on, um, you, you're, you've all, we're not even three minutes into the show and you've already blown my mind. Did you, did you just say that if our nutrition is lacking, the, the cannabinoid therapy will only be able to do so much because our body won't have the capacity to properly use the cannabis we're introducing? Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. All right. Please continue. Yeah. Well, and, and that you know, and so that's you know, and, and you can carry that three theme through a whole, a whole, the whole range of things that I'm suggesting here. So, I mean, if we start off, like I said, with optimizing the nutrition, you know, and and again, I mean, you can talk about things like fats and protein status and amino acids and such. You know, if we talk about micronutrients, you know, I mean, there's you know, the area that I do a lot of work with with my patients is nutrigenomics. You know, so we'll use like the the 23andMe platforms. One we tend to use the most. It's it's 
you know, some people have concerns about that um, for a number of different reasons, uh, mostly about where their health data and things like that's going in. But it certainly is accessible, and and you know, and that's a whole other conversation we could have. But I mean, certainly within that, you see variability within patient populations on you know, again, how they build different parts of things that intersect with the endocannabinoid system, and and those are things that can be modulated, again, macronutrient and micronutrients. So. You know, that's probably, you know, again, that's a fairly deep dive into, okay, what's the diet that you're looking at? You know, let's take a look at some of the physical signs and symptoms that we can be looking at various different nutrient deficiencies, you know, and, and that starts to become part of the, the conversation and basic, you know, history building, you know, that, that you know, I do. Um, next thing, you know, we take a look at is hormones and hormones build off of your nutritional status as well, too. And, and again, you know, what you know, we're talking estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, you know, we can move into some of the neurotransmitter part of that as well, too. You know, whether talking dopamine, you know, serotonin, you know, uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, cortisol levels, all of those have huge interplays, you know, with regards to you know, um, effects on metabolism and blood glucose. And so again, you know, you need to have, you know, if your carbohydrate metabolism and blood sugar is off, you know, is that, you know, an impact on cortisol or a response to altered cortisol status and adrenal function. And so again, you know, that's your dietary habits start to build in on that as well too. And so that starts to become the next part of that. You know, I th we also take a look and if we look at the, the nutrigenomics part of this, you know, things like, um, you know, catecholamine, like dopamine, for example, is a catecholamine, you know, and it's, you know, it's impacted by um, a whole host of a you know, network of, of different, um, you know, estrogen metabolism, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, and those build on, again, various different micronutrients like B vitamins and methylation status on neurotransmitter production. So suddenly now you're seeing this intersection here and, and you know, how those hormones and neurotransmitters are cleared out of the system, uh, particularly through something called catechol O-methyltransferase, which is an, an enzyme that's the, the warrior versus the warrior phenotype, if anybody's been following that aspect of it. And that has, in my experience, has significant implications for endocannabinoid tone and response, you know, and, and furthermore, it probably explains to a large extent what's going on, you know, with, for example, the gender differences that we see, you know, how women versus males respond differently. And largely that has a significant, you know, interplay with, um, you know, estrogen metabolism and impacts on dopamine. So, you know, that starts to become something that's super, super interesting. So there's that element of it. You know, the next phase that I start taking a look at is, is uh, the gastrointestinal tract. Um, I do tons of work. I mean, it's, it's one of the areas that I work about side of cannabis medicine with several other companies with, which is on microbiome. And, um, you know, so that suddenly ties in hugely with our, um, uh, you know, endocannabinoid. And there's some really interesting research that takes a look at the endocannabinoid system as kind of the intersection between the gut microbiome you know, and, and the, the gut-brain access and the implications of that on endocannabinoid system functioning are, are fascinating as well, too. You know, so this becomes something that, again, when you base it on our nutrition, I mean, the types of fibers that we start to make, like, for example, if we wanted to dig down into this a little bit more, and again, we can, obviously, we've got some, some times to talk about this, so you'll probably find I skitter around over places, but, 
you know, let's take a look at something like GABA, you know, the endocannabinoid system, you know, the CB1 receptors are, are you know, I mean, they, they have significant impacts on GABA and glutamate, you know, those are the excitatory inhibitory neurotransmitters. And one of the interesting things is, is if we take a look at the gut microbiome, you know, butyrate is a short chain fatty acid. Um, anybody who's ever smelled rancid butter, um, you know, that's, you know, that's butyrate or that's uh, butyrate. And, um, but it's produced by, um, you know, the microbiome in the large intestine, you know, the, the bacteroides species of bacteria that colonize the large intestine. And it gets it by fermenting different types of fibers, particularly things like psyllium powder and, um, and oat bran are two big sources of it as well, too. There's several others as well, but that's what I use predominantly. And butyrate is actually the building block for GABA right gamma amino butyric acid so butyrate butyric so suddenly now you're taking a look at one of the major you know sort of regulatory neurotransmitters within the endocannabinoid system you know the significant component of it is being generated in our gastrointestinal tracts by our microbiome and the type of fiber that we eat so suddenly that you know has huge implications on this as well too so that becomes a really significant element and you know i do seminars for um uh, for continuing medical education for patients on, on gut ecology and gut microbiome and how that works and intersects with immune function and T-cell polarization and this type of thing as well, too. So there's some, some really interesting intersections. And again, you know, when we start talking about endocannabinoids, you know, when we start thinking about anti-inflammatory effects and effects, you know, how much of that is this intersection with gut microbiome and, and T-cell polarization through you know, mucus associated and uh, uh, lymphoid tissue and this type of thing. So that's, that's that part of it. Um, my past work was in environmental medicine. I spent, uh, I did a postdoctorate down at, uh, in Phoenix at the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. We created a environmental medicine center, center of excellence, uh, Dr. Walter Crinian, who you guys actually probably up in the Washington State area would know him. Uh, he was quite highly regarded for environmental medicine, had a very large clinic up there. And so I had the opportunity to, to spend a lot of time and learn from him. So, you know, we got to spend, you know, things like working with the Phoenix Fire Department and setting up a, a, a wellness center and working at sort of, you know, getting heavy metals out of guys that went to Hurricane Katrina, and you know, 9-11 and stuff and trying to get rid of you know, various different toxins and the implications on that. But that part became part of these detoxification pathways. And certainly in that work, I mean, that's probably where I ended up getting a lot of my my interest in, in genomics because we were taking a look at, at genetic variation and cytochrome P450 uh, enzymes, which are the enzymes that clear out a large, you know, the significant amount of what we call xenobiotics or, you know, chemicals within the environment. You know, how those things get out of our system is run through the liver, which is this big filter. You know, and, and so that has implications on drug metabolism and how that clears out. And, you know, and again, when we took a look at environmental pollutants, you know, things like solvent exposures and pesticides and heavy metals, you know, what we looked at is that had, you know, three sort of areas that they affected, neurological, immune function, and endocrine. And so, you know, suddenly when we start taking a look at, at the impacts of, of, you know, environmental compounds and these xenobiotics, you know, and how that starts to impact, you know, hepatic function and clearance and, you know, you know, how genetic polymorphisms and variations start to impact that. Then suddenly again, you know, I mean, suddenly there's all sorts of, you know, 
connections and intersections happening with the endocannabinoid system. You know, and certainly, you know, I mean, you know, Ethan, you know, uh, Dr. Russo and I were just doing that work on, um, you know, the genetics of uh, cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. You know, and, and in what we were seeing in there was, you know, some genetic variants on some of these drug clearance pathways, you know, which again intersects with pharmacogenomics and potentially, you know, this environmental medicine type thing, you know, and certainly, you know, one of the things that I look at in the work that I've done with some of the licensed producers up here in Canada, you know, as we've really tried to emphasize, hey, look, pesticides are a problem, you know, but even especially with hemp, for example, I mean, one of the things that I think that gets, you know, missed a little bit is that hemp is a bioaccumulator of cadmium, right? You know, and so now you're going to have to start taking a look and paying attention. And those those heavy metals need to be looked at. And especially when we're doing concentrates, you know, is that starting to be something? And, and cadmium is a fairly nasty metal that has some significant implications, particularly on estrogen metabolism. So there's your detoxification pathways. Right on. So um, so for, for those who are, are, are keeping score at home, um, I'm seeing uh, four variables so far that you delineated that you uh, talk to your patients about as you are moving towards your diagnosis and figuring out cannabis protocols. Number one being, what is the state of their nutrition? Because they have to have the capacity to be able to... Um, to intake the the cannabinoids, uh, two uh, was hormones, um, three was the 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 status of their GI tract, and four would be environmental influences that might be acting on the endocannabinoid system. Um, before we go into those any more depth, is there is there more on that list? That's it. All right. So, so I, a couple of things that I want to focus on, which just um, uh, glowed in your answers, but I didn't want to interrupt you. So, so the first thing is, is um, you mentioned with you know some amount of of coarseness to it that there are gender differences um, when it comes to using cannabis, and um, there is just not a lot being talked about on that. Would you go into that a little bit? Oh, sure. Yeah. Um... Let's see. Where do we start on this one? Hmm. Well, how about um, um, how do the health <laughs> how do the health benefits of using cannabinoid medicine differ between men and women and others? Yeah, I, there's a couple different areas that I would look at this, and I I guess where I was trying to think is there's is how do we put this into a logical framework that makes sense? So I think where I'd probably start with this. We, we see different responses, uh, like women in general have different responses to dopamine. And that's, that's a large factor because dopamine and estrogen get cleared out through this, this calm T enzyme, right? And, and so what tends to happen is, is that uh, this system can be overloaded. Um, you know, it becomes, you know, has to clear out. I, I usually use the analogy of we've got a a kitchen sink and what's what's the size of the drain in the kitchen sink and within that sink we're pouring in these various different hormones and neurotransmitters and so obviously for women as estrogen levels you know start to to rise you know you're going to have a, a more significant capacity consumed by the clearance of those you know that particular hormone and so what are the implications on that for other neurotransmitters and, and things like dopamine for example so that's I think that that by and you know it has some significant implications on you know how women respond to it you know how they utilize it and dosing strategies and that and it's it's not 
I mean, I couldn't say definitively that I'd have to spend time with each particular patient to kind of identify, you know, what's going on. So, for example, you know, some women, um, either through nutritional deficiencies or genetic variants, don't clear out estrogen as well. You know, they either have a smaller drain or what have you. And so that has implications on mood, which, you know, I mean, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, but anybody who's in a relationship will have noticed that sometimes, you know, moods change a little bit throughout cycles. And again, that has a lot in my experience to do with, again, you know, how these estrogen metabolites are either accumulating because there's, there's multiple different, you know, um, metabolites of estrogen based on the, the molecular structure, what we call 2-hydroxy, 4-hydroxy, and 16-hydroxy alpha um, estrogens. And each one has a slightly different effect and pathway. And so as those are kind of consuming up different capacity of COMT, then that starts to shift around, you know, the, the dopamine metabolism and can lead to, you know, again, mood, anxiety, you know, uh, headaches, you know, pain, cramping, and this type of thing. So, so I think that that's, you know, just, just from a standpoint of, of how you deal, you know, with women's health and, and gynecological health, you know, that's, you know, the, those estrogen metabolites in that pathway. So when we start taking a look at, at the endocannabinoid system, well, we see intersection there through, you know, uh, serotonin pathways and dopamine pathways in particular. Um, and then furthermore, you know, things like, you know, the menstrual cycle is regulated through prostaglandins and prostaglandins are, um, again, you know, uh, built out of the types of fats that we have, or omega-3, 6, and 9, saturated fats, arachidonic acid, and this type of thing. And those prostaglandins have a, sig a significant impact on the lining of the uterus of the endometrium. And again, so, you know, they help, you know, shut off and open the small blood, blood vessels that are involved in menses. And so, you know, the, again, one of the things that we work a lot with, with women is taking a look at your essential fatty acid status. And so, you know, I think the logical extension of that is, well, let's take a look at what happens with the endocannabinoid system. And certainly, you know, we see that, you know, um, you know, various different endocannabinoids like PEA and, and this type of thing have an impact on, on uterine proliferation, endometriosis, ovarian cysts and such. So, so I think that's, you know, probably, a, a, you know, yeah. We'll yeah, that's that, a good that snapshot. And you know, listening to you describe this, you know, on, on one hand, um, the detail in your answer is remarkable because I swear I talk to cannabis researchers all the time and I do not get this level of detailed answer from most anybody, which, you know, is impressive. But then also at the same time, as somebody who works with patients, you know, daily, um, it also is kind of frustrating because I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is the, the more, the more sentences you say, Chris, the more complex the, the diagnosis seems to become about what cannabinoids we're going to use to offer relief and strengthening to which part of the human so they can even use the other cannabinoids to, uh, with the ailment that we're actually targeting. It's like there's so many there's so many layers, and it makes sense, right? I mean, so many people poo-poo the idea of how much good cannabis does. They're like, oh, people think it solves everything.
everything. Well, it's like, you know, all right, it doesn't solve everything. It solves one thing, the endocannabinoid system. And the thing is, is that's the body's um, thermostat. And so it touches all of the mission critical systems in the body. So yeah, cannabis does really well with this one system, but it's the master regulator. So in a way, yeah, it, it actually does help everything. And while that makes it such a beneficial herb, at the same time, as a caregiver who's listening to this show, I can imagine it can feel kind of, I don't know, defeating in a way where who's got the amount of information about their about their patient and the time to talk with them about all of this. And, and we're going to talk more in the second set about the analytics you use. But, but just speaking to the bigger idea of the complexity of this really suggests to me that we have just scratched the surface of endocannabinoid medicine. Yeah, and I, I, I think this is the I mean, this speaks to such a larger issue, you know, which is, is what is healthcare and what is disease care, right? You know, and, and like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm integrative, you know, I mean, a lot of my, my naturopathic doctor friends shriek and whore, you know, when I prescribe stuff and, and things like that. And a lot of my medical doctor friends shriek and whore when I start talking about, you know, holistic approaches and things like that. Um, so I, I look at myself as a bridge, you know, I, I try very much to be very grounded in science, you know, um, but I also recognize that, you know, I mean, there, there's a role, you have to use the right tool, you know, you have to, but you have to also have enough information And in our healthcare system at this time, you know, struggles, and especially up here in Canada, I've talked with many, many of my medical doctor friends, you know, and, and we have, you know, we have medicine where doctors are, you know, paid by the government and things like that. But, you know, uh, to a large extent, and again, I practice in the US, you know, medicine is is determined, you know, on, on this sort of fee for service model, right, which means that, okay, well, if you see more patients, you make more revenue out of this. And so, you know, and, and the, uh, the efforts around evidence based medicine, and to do these things are to try and create a a structured framework to do that which is again it's really helpful when you know you're in an emergency room and you're crashing and you're having a heart attack or you've been in a motor vehicle accident or you've crashed or something like that as well too i mean these are things where you know um are super important to have these things that can be acted on quickly and rapidly and be very very effective but the model starts to break down as we get more and more into these individual you know into individual care and and i think you know what i i struggle with and what I, I try and you know my one small voice in the wilderness here is to say like hey everybody it, it can't just be about cannabis it actually needs to be about the patient and and like i said cannabis is an incredible tool it's it's very helpful and, and as we you know we've talked in our previous conversations is that you know i, I kind of come from that as saying like you know it, it, cannabis is, is remarkably easy to to do something with because it actually works you can see it happening i mean try dealing with you know the, the sort of poking and prodding of some of the other herbal medicines and and so that becomes you know um, it's more difficult it's more nuanced on this as well too so you know but what i struggle with here a little bit is that i see cannabis kind of being moved into sort of like well thc and cbd what's the dose what's the prescribing and all the rest of that and we move into what i call sort of you know and i'm not the only one i certainly didn't coin this term but green allopathy which is well let's just find a green alternative for the medication so We'll use willow bark or curcumin for aspirin. There's an anti-inflammatory, or we'll you 
choose whatever one sort of goes to there. And again, you know, I think, you know, trying to bring this patient-centered focus back into it. And I think that's, you know, that's what sort of drew me to the, you know, endocannabinoids and cannabis system was we started to see patients responding quickly and, and you know, f- being able to work fairly you know, on their own to be able to sort of manage their own healthcare through accessing cannabis. And now it's sort of like, you know, my job that I kind of look at is, well, let's bring in some of these other stuff that's been, you know, I mean, you know, what I'm talking about here isn't new within sort of the integrative medicine naturopathic community. It's just nobody's ever overlaid it on the endocannabinoid system um, in this particular way. And and so, you know, it's just, like I said, my role as a bridge is to try and sort of bring that up. But again, you know, I mean, for patients in of itself, I think most people have a good sense of, you know, how do I optimize nutrition? I think if we sat down and said, okay, what's a healthy diet look like? You know, most people could tell us. And so I would say like, well, just recognize how important that is. And not and not only just in using that in cannabis, but again, also trying to make your cannabis work better for you. You know, and, and you know, again, are we, do we as, as clinicians and people, do we want to keep someone on a medication forever, whether it be cannabis or a pharmaceutical or a herbal medicine? Or do we want to try and build the capacity where patients can take control of their health. Things like, okay, I'm out there exercising, I'm getting blood pumping, I'm you know, doing my exercise routine, I'm eating healthy, I've got my diet cleared up as well too. And does that start to say, I use my cannabis to kind of help me get to a certain space and now I can use it either less frequently or at certain situations because I have the resiliency because I built on these other aspects. So. So another thing that you mentioned that I found very engaging is this phrase that I'm going to start using all the time of medicine by average. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know that there are doctors and caregivers who are listening who run into this every day because, you know, first off, just because we work with cannabis, um, at least up until normalization has begun, the vast majority of patients that we come in contact with, they are already not the average. They are the fringe because by the time that people get to cannabis medicine, they've usually already tried everything else, right? The idea of like, you know, everybody's parents and grandparents now using, you know, topicals and, and you know, edibles for their aches and pains, this is really something that has just come into acceptance again, you know, more recently as there are more recreational stores around but but you know in the in the transition years that we're in and certainly in the heritage market by the time people got to cannabis um western medicine had already given up on them and so so by its very you know nature of the prohibition years everyone we got was generally not average they were on the fringe because regular medicine didn't work for them so then we've got that set of patients but then also we've got all these new patients which uh you know since since cannabis medicine can can help just about everybody um you know there's there's all these people who are served by western medicine who are now also being served by cannabinopathic care and Um, I find it both, you know, informative and troubling that the medicine by average really is to the advantage of the the health industry and the and the patient care industry and not the the healthcare industry as you made that delineation earlier about about medicine for health versus medicine to keep you alive to sell you more medicine right and mm-hmm. um this idea of medicine by average 
is so frustrating to so many caregivers. I'm not expecting you to have an answer for it because it's 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 a it's a difficult paradoxical thing. But but what kind of advice would you give to caregivers who are dealing with this trying to provide individualized medicine in a system that does medicine by average? Mhm. Yeah, I mean and again, you know, I'm so steeped in it. I had, you know, Again, I had this conversation with a patient the other day and, and they're like, oh my God, this is so frustrating. And it's like, well, this is just the ocean that we kind of swim in as naturopathic physicians. It's something that, you know, is, is why people come and seek us out. Um, I, I think that this is the amazing about, you know, podcasts like this in the world that we live in now is that people are starting to, you know, learn more. And, and I mean, just, just you know, like, you know, I think about my own experience and figuring out cannabis and, you know the the people that I've worked with, and just the giants that I've I've had the opportunity to to learn from, right? You know, but my 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 own learning was accelerated that way. But I think at the end of the day, you know, being you know your own advocate um, and starting to sort of say like, hey, wait a second, you know, th- I have some questions about this and about that. You know, that that's that's key. I mean, that's the most important part of it, you know, and I think the hardest part is, yeah, how do you find a, a clinician that works, you know, that's saying like, well, that's really interesting. And, and I don't, I, I certainly can't answer you. I mean, I'm always surprised at some of the doctors that are super open to this and some of that aren't, you know, I mean, I just had a, a super interesting conversation with a rheumatologist down there your way in Seattle, uh, doing really cool stuff with a heart rate variability and, and autoimmune illnesses. And, we were coming at this from two different ways, but the intersection was remarkable. And I'm like, okay, I've met some rheumatologists and it can be pretty conservative, right? You know, and so suddenly, you know, to have them move outside of this is really exciting. So, uh, you know, again, I, I, I couldn't tell you how, but I think certainly, I think, I think most doctors are seeking, you know, that relationship. I think the, the, um, the epidemic of physician burnout that we have has a lot to do with the loss of sort of the doctor-patient relationship. You know, doctors are seeing that as much as anyone else. And so, you know, I mean, you, you'll, you'll have to, you're going to have to sort through a bunch of different physicians, perhaps, until you find one that, that has that. And, and I, but I, I do sympathize with a lot of those doctors. And certainly, you know, the ones that I know socially versus I know professionally, sometimes there's a bit of a uh, incongruity between the people I know them to be and how they're working in their space and they're all humans. And so I try and approach that with some compassion and, 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 and sympathy uh, of how they're doing and, and, and go from there. So uh, again, I don't, I don't know if I necessarily have an answer other than to say to be the advocate, you know, understand your patient, your doctor is, is probably struggling in a lot of different ways around that and, and reach out and try and engage in conversation and you'll find some that do and some that don't, which is, you know, maybe horribly naive, but that's what I'll put out there. Right on. Thank you, Chris. So yeah. um, we're going to take a short break and be right back and um, make sure you do come back because after the break, um, we are going to be talking about some of the um, analytics that are available to take a good snapshot of your body or your patient's body so that you can start to thread the needle of individual individualized cannabis medicine. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is naturopathic physician Chris Spooner. 
As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert Biological Systems has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the U.S. from coast to coast. No matter where you live, Copert Biological Systems can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T.com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check out their Instagram, at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. If you are an autoflowering cannabis enthusiast, this event's for you. Announcing the 2021 Autoflower Cup, August 6th, 7th, and 8th in Lillooup, Washington, just outside of Seattle. Presented by Camp Ruderalis, this gathering has something for everyone. There's the Autoflower Cup competition, of course, but it's so much more than that. There'll be a Stunden Glass Hookah Lounge, a pop-up Magical Butter Chocolate Shop, and Waterfront Marketplace with an array of vendors. There will be an old-school autoflower seed swap, joint rolling competition, cannabis cooking demos, solventless squishing demos, and late-night documentary screenings of both dosed and fantastic fungi. The food will be lit, too, including Chef Sebastian Carosi's award-winning classics like elk chili, Kobe beef kimchi dogs, oyster po'boys, and razor clam chowder. Enjoy the campfire chili and oyster chowder cook-off, wild oyster harvesting, mushroom foraging, and s'mores around the campfires each night. Each day there, Dan Jimmy of Mandalorian will teach about autoflowers, and there will be presentations on closet cultivation and hunting for psilocybin mushrooms. The competition is open to everyone, commercial and home growers. There is a category for photo period plants too, so check out the autoflowercup2021.com for those details. Clearly, there will be plenty of cannabis around, but due to state law, it won't be supplied by the event. But there will be easy public toking, which is why this is a strictly over-21 event. You can camp, rent a cabin, or stay at a local Airbnb. Glamping and RV packages are available too. I'm happy to say that Shaping Fire is a sponsor of the event, and I'll be there too. I look forward to connecting with other Autoflower fans like me. So get all the details at theautoflowercup2021.com and follow the Instagram at theautoflowercup2021. And I'll see you in August at Autoflower Cup when we bring the Autoflower family together to celebrate. While I love growing under the sun, there's a lot of good reasons to grow indoors. And if you're like most folks, you want a lighting source that grows high-yielding, healthy plants without using excessive amounts of electricity. BIOS Lighting creates biological lighting solutions that brings the natural brilliance of the outdoors into your grow room. 
BIOS lighting has the attributes that I look for in a horticultural lighting solution. I've bought those cheap lights online and they're difficult to work with and fail in no time. In contrast, my BIOS LED light is industrial grade to last a long time. It is IP66 wet rated so little foliar overspray won't harm it. It is easy to clean without taking it down, and of course, the most important aspect, it is built for the exact light spectrum I want for great yielding, healthy cannabis plants. And it doesn't hurt that their lighting rigs look badass too. Many horticultural LED lighting systems are based on irrelevant performance metrics and people love to argue online about these numbers. I prefer to judge on par photon efficiency and how happy my plants are, and the BIOS lights exceed my expectations in these categories. BIOS lights have an optimized broad spectrum that maximizes photosynthesis and plant growth while also providing the ideal conditions for superior par efficacy and a comfortable visual experience. I also love their attentive and overeducated customer service folks. BIOS starts with a team of biologists before getting the electrical engineers involved. They have studied how light impacts cannabis plants and devised an overall strategy that works. I encourage you to check out their website at bioslighting.com to learn more about how this strategy can work for you. And Shaping Fire listeners can get a special deal. Use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, no caps, for 10% off your entire purchase. That's bioslighting.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is naturopathic physician, Chris Spooner. So during the first set, we focused on the different variables that can significantly impact the patient's use of uh, cannabinoids. And uh, during the second set, we're going to try to figure out how we suss out which of these variables we need to be able to pay the most attention to when either doing a self-assessment as a patient who is trying to self-heal or as a doctor or caregiver who is working with a patient and you want to give them the best individualized medicine as possible. So, so Chris, I guess take us from the top. You know, you've, you've got a new patient and you've got their, you know, questionnaire in front of you. And, and, and you know, from our, our prior talks, I know that there is, um, I, you know, I'll, I'll call it a battery of tests. I don't know if it's that many, but there are some tests that you rely on um to give you your basic information and you know we've all had blood tests so why don't we start there something that people have got a frame of reference with and then and then uh, continue on through the other analytics that that you give your patients yeah sure yeah and it, it again you know it's obviously this is gonna fluctuate a little bit you know so i mean you know i'll give that caveat before we get started here and certainly if you know, I may segue into one or two of those if we need to, but, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when we're starting off, I mean, you, there's a number of things to factor here, you know, so first of all, you know, what type of testing does a, a clinician or, or a patient have access to, you know, I think probably what I try and do is start off with the very basics, you know, basic blood work, blood chemistry, uh, you know, CBC, like complete, complete blood counts, you know, liver function tests, you know, thyroid, these, these sort of standard things that you can get from any of your, your medical doctors, you know, or, or naturopathic physicians, or, or, you know, these are pretty straightforward. So, I mean, that's, that's a nice, easy one to do. It's, it's relatively inexpensive. It's, you know, so I think this is a good place to start. 
Um, generally, what I do is I kind of break this down. And if we're starting with the, the model or the framework that I suggested about, you know, taking a look at sort of optimizing nutrition here a little bit, you know, there's a couple of markers that you can take a look at within a basic blood work that can give you a general sense of things. So, for example, you know, we could start off with, is someone anemic or not? You know, so a lot of patients may come in with fatigue and, you know, exhaustion and, you know, and, and, and fatigue is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty broad-based indicator. But, you know, I mean, we can sort of see is like, you know, what's your iron status looking like? You know, because I mean, sometimes you just need to make sure that you're checking off some of the basics because sometimes there's a tendency to, you know, to, to rush off into more exotic, you know, the the analysis is you know when we hear hooves think of horses not zebras right you know and then the, the qualifier is unless you're in africa but you know so there's some contextual component to that as well too you know so so certainly just taking a look at you know what your your red blood cell counts hematocrit hemoglobin is um and and just making sure you're not running anemic but within that you know one of the ones that i like to pay attention to is a fairly it's a decent indicator of things like vitamin b12 and folic acid status uh, is is what's called the MCV. It's the mean corpuscular volume. So this is basically, you know, the the size of your red blood cells. You know, and and uh, usually, I mean, the the old term for it was a pernicious anemia, which, you know, then we'd give people B12 shots to try and bring it around a little bit if this MCV was a little bit elevated. Um, I, 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 up here in Canada, I, I think we're using the same units. Some of these will vary a little bit, but usually it's above ninety seven. I forget what the number is. You just you know, forget the the units, um, but uh, you know that usually suggests that these blood cells are a little bit bigger. And and the reason that this one's important from an endocannabinoid status is is if we go back to this sort of you know calm T pathway that I was you know sort of speaking to a little bit earlier. You know the B vitamins, particularly you know uh, folic acid, B twelve, B six, and that are involved in this thing called a methylation pathway. And and this methylation pathway is one of these things that creates uh, a compound that that you know supports uh, COM T, S-adenosylmethionine uh, in particular is is the one it is. But um, but those your B, your folic acid and your B12 have to be you know have this little methyl group. It's a little carbon with three hydrogens onto it added to it. So you get these methylated B vitamins. And you know for for people that are are in the know about nutritional supplementation, we most people tend to use methylated forms of folic acid and B12 uh, because they're active, and they, we know that these genetic variants aren't there. But certainly, if we see the MCV starting to be up there a little bit, it, it starts to become something like, well, maybe we need to take a look at the B12 status. Or, or take a look at, um, you know, uh, supplementing someone with that. You know, the other part of this is, is that pernicious anemia often had something to do with gastric inflammation. Uh, B12's absorbed. Uh, there's a cofactor for it in the lining of the gut that helps get it absorbed. So if there's irritation to the lining of the stomach, you know, certainly that can compromise absorption as well, too. So things like acid blocker medications and that can have impacts on that. So, so that's the one of the, you know, a nice place to start. It's nice and easy. So if you're seeing that MCV being a little bit elevated, well, maybe we need to take a look at that sort of the absorption of B12 and its various parameters of that. Um, as we start working down a little bit more, a couple of the other markers that I start to take a look in there, um, you know, I take to, I like to take a look at the white blood cell counts. Um, and this speaks to a larger element that's, that's um, we need to have a, a quick conversation about which is about what are reference ranges because this very much speaks to our last thing of you know me medicine by average 
you know, so I think people need to understand that reference ranges. So when you when you get a lab test, it gives you the number. Like for example, TV is ninety one, and with it, you're given a reference range that is eighty eight through ninety seven, right? And and you look at that, and you're like, oh, well, that must mean that I'm healthy within this space. Well, you could be or you couldn't, but you need to understand that that reference range refers to a population norm. So basically what you're looking at is sort of a, you know, kind of a 95% of the tests fall within value A and value B, of which there's an upper and lower range, right? And so that really speaks to this sort of medicine by average. And, and I've always sort of been like, well, if you're one of these people that tends to be up at the upper end of a value, you know, and you drop 10 points, you know, do you feel as bad as a person who's at the lower end of the value and drops 10 points? You know, and, uh, you know, but one of those falls within the, the reference range and one of them doesn't. And so that's where this individualized medicine goes, where you need to kind of start to ask some, you know, patients some questions about this. And, and thyroid testing is notorious for this, right? You know, you can see some patients, you know, um, they just have a range that they feel much better and that sometimes is inside the reference range and sometimes outside of that. You know, so, hold on, before you continue on, another thing that you just said about the reference range that just surprised me, um, unless I misunderstood, you said that the reference range comes from the averages of the tests that are um, taking place. Well, that means that if a population is getting increasingly unhealthy, that the reference range will change as well. Say, for example, in my country, you know, obesity is a scourge here. And mm -hmm. so the, our reference ranges that are attached to obesity would be theoretically moving in the wrong directions. But then also, since it's happening to so many people, our reference range is actually drifting with the population's lack of health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, potentially, you know, and I think, you know, and for some of these tests, you know, there's a long history of what we know, like, you know, blood lipids and things like that, you know, that it's like, okay, well, we know that these issues, you know, I mean, there's a fairly long history of what this looks like. So I think they're a little bit more resistant to that trending in that respect. Um, so, so, I, so I, yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. And I think for like, for example, again, let's go back to thyroid a little bit, you know, because again, there's a lot of interpretation on that. And there's other factors that start to come into this, you know, the thyroid, the, it's interesting up here in Canada, you know, the, the, depending on the lab, the upper limit of that is, is 5.5. And I believe that if you cross the border down in, in, into Washington state there, I believe the American College for Endocrinology has kind of said it is like under 2.5. So there's a significant difference on where you're classified as, you know, hypothyroid or thyroid. And it, it may not necessarily be the test so much as what it, the impact is on your clinician's mindset as to whether this is an issue or not. So someone that's looking at a reference range of up to five, you know, I would say like, whoa, okay, your thyroid, your TSH level sitting at 4.5, that's a problem. Whereas a physician may not, you know, who's used to seeing it at five, whereas someone who's trained, you know, or in a different jurisdiction where it's slightly different may look at that and be like, oh, yeah, no, I agree, you know, that, you know, you need to be under 2.5. So I, I think you've got two things there. One is certainly the issue that you're speaking to, but the other one is also the clinician's mindset and how they start to prioritize what to look like, which I think is probably a little bit more 
I don't know if insidious is the word, but that's the one that comes to mind right now. <laughs> so, so, so far we've been talking about the blood test because that's something that we're all kind of familiar with. We've all seen our ranges and we could probably do an entire show just talking about a blood test and how to go through each aspect of it and how it could impact the endocannabinoid system. And maybe we'll do that. But for today, let's, let's move on. Cause I think that, I think that both patients and caregivers have gotten a good taste of, of what there could be to unearth in a blood test. I mean, I know that I, I'm going to go back and look at my recent blood work with whole new eyes now, but let's move on to the next one. So, so what other analytics do you, um, do look at to help get that snapshot so that you know in what ways to diagnose and give protocol to a patient. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think the next one is that's the biggest one. That's and we touched on this is is healthy hormones, right? So what 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 and, and I tend to use a lot of um, questionnaires around this. And again, we could probably go quite some time on this. But certainly, like I said, I think when I'm taking a look at this, where I've been spending a lot of time with patients, I don't know whether it's just the patient population that's coming in right at this moment but but certainly obviously in the the world that we live in now stress levels are through the roof with people right you know and so super key indicators you know that, that i think really impact endocannabinoid function are things like you know that that stress hormone cortisol epinephrine norepinephrine you know dopamine type parts of that and so that leads me down sort of taking a good hard look at at where these stress hormones comes in and, and questionnaires are usually you know the most straightforward way i mean when i start taking a look at adrenal stress you know and and sort of these elevated cortisol you know adrenaline noradrenaline pathways you know sleep's always a big indicator you know i, I really i try and get patients to tell me okay a little bit what's your sleep looking like you know and if people are coming in because again there's different ways that people don't sleep well and certainly i think you know if i take a look at where a vast majority of my patients are using you know cannabinoid therapies it's certainly in the area of sleep right so but i, I think that for some patients it works and for some patients it doesn't and and again that goes into sort of that regulatory effect of you know do you, are you sort of winding someone down by having more gaba in their system you know or you know are they starting to be stressed out and is this cortisol and so there's that interplay between the stress response and these neurotransmitters so what's this question you know so sleep so i, I ask patients for example if i'm trying to root out okay is there a stress response and, and this is usually something like cortisol is a big one right you can get a good indicator about okay first of all are you difficult having difficulty falling asleep at night and what does that look like so a patient for example that you know they need to get to bed by a certain time frame if they're not in bed and asleep between nine and ten you know suddenly they get a second win and they're up and about again um you know that's almost always a, a pretty good indicator that they're getting a little bit of a second cortisol spike which is unusual your cortisol should be sort of winding down towards the end of the day you know it peaks in the morning and then it tapers off throughout the day um, but if it starts to come up a little bit at the end of the day you're going to see this this sleep issue you know and so that becomes something that will will probably impact your response to cannabinoids like you may find that the cannabinoids knock you out and certainly depending on the 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 form that you're using right you know i mean and, and i'm sure you've had this conversation many times you know orally you know cannabinoids take longer to set in but you get that six to eight window effect and you get a little bit more of those psychoactive compounds because of that sort of 
first pass liver function there a little bit as well too so you know but if some people are, are vaping or, or something like that you know they may not are using you know different forms of it that have a little bit more rapid onset that might clear out a little bit more quickly so you know a patient that's vaping i usually recommend vaping as opposed to smoking just because of my environmental medicine background and smoking is not something that i i try to i try to discourage as much as possible um i you know an hour and a half two hours in suddenly they'll be up again so you really need to take a look at that that cortisol response and again there's different ways you can deal with that you know whether that's meditation winding down taking a look at your use of electronics beforehand what does your stress sleep hygiene look like you know there's some herbs that i use that are, are quite helpful in there that kind of synergize nicely with cannabinoids there as well too so that's there's that's that's a, a, that's a really interesting point about um the the lights in the evenings and that second potential cortisol spike because you know clearly i talk with patients about you know sleeping in cannabis all the time and the number one thing that comes up with people is i ask them do you drink coffee right because because people are like oh i've got such insomnia but like i know that coffee's got a half-life of 14 hours Mm -hmm. and so that means that by the time they're drinking their coffee tomorrow they still have this morning's coffee still in them and so I encourage them to, you know, cut down on the, or get rid of the coffee or caffeine and, you know, their, their insomnia will probably go away. And, you know, after they look at me with utter shock, um, mm-hmm. you know, they're all like, listen, I'd rather keep the caffeine and just use more THC to get to sleep. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's yeah. not uncommon, yeah. but this idea of the blue lights and using electronics at night of which I am absolutely guilty of, it's an interesting idea that if poor sleep is uh, decreasing our cannabinoid uptake and effectiveness and poor sleep comes from using my phone in bed at night and getting a second win and hanging out for two hours on bed reading stuff, what this, you know, if we backtrack that all the way back, my using my devices at night is hurting my endocannabinoid system. And that is not something I think is immediately apparent to most folks. It certainly wasn't to me mm-hmm. until now. Yeah. And, and certainly, you know, again, if we, you think about it in the context of, of a thermostat, right. You know, I mean, you know, my thermostat goes and tries to heat the house, but I've got all the windows and doors open. Well, that's going to be a little oh, bit more good example. Yeah. Right. There's there's only there's only so much capacity that you can. And I think that, you know, I mean, uh, and this touches on, you know, some of the genetics that we talked about. It talks about sort of the nutritional capacity. It talks about the hormonal environment, you know, so, you know, all those things. So, again, you know, it's sort of like, OK, how do I optimize the system? And, and you know, and, and this is the interesting thing, right, is I think I think that the thing that's become most apparent to me here is, is that your your body it seems to me, and there's probably people that are much smarter than me that could expect, you know, that could explain this or maybe poke holes in this argument. So uh, please feel free to, I'd love to learn about this. But, but what I find is, is for example, like let's take a look at the stress response and talk about inflammation. And, and what I want to use this example to demonstrate is it isn't turn one on, turn one off. It's turn both on and then turn one off. So what ends up happening is you get a faster response if you have the sort of, you know, the, 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 the driver and the inhibitor going at the same time. So there's a tension created in the system, 
right? And what happens is, is that, so for example, uh, when we take a look at cortisol response, cortisol is a immunosuppressant, right? It, 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 it's an anti-inflammatory. Anybody that's taken prednisone or, you know, will, will appreciate that. So it's a very powerful anti-inflammatory. At the same time, cortotrophic releasing hormone, which is the hormone that stimulates the response of that, also has an impact on vagal nerve tone, which drives a pro-inflammatory response. So you've got the same mechanism, like different branches of the cortisol result being anti-inflammatory, but then um, pro-inflammatory at the same time. And if you think about this, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to run away from, I'll use a distinctly Canadian response, you know, the, the grizzly bear. Um, you don't want to wait for your system to come online if they've you know given you a club or two and you're running away like crazy. So you want your system to come online. So basically, as your stress response drops, suddenly it unleashes the anti-inflammatory effect, you know, on your nervous system, which is wired to get you the hell out of dodge, you know, suddenly shuts down and calms down. Now the other one can basically cascade in on it. So I think the endocannabinoid system probably has that same type of tension in there. And then you've got all these other modifiers around it as well, too. And when we talk about the lack of sleep or the dietary issues on top of that suddenly you're you're taking away you're limiting the resiliency of it you're kind of sort of cornering it in a little bit so that you limit that response a bit that way Wow. All right. So, so, so far we have talked about, um, uh, the analytics that are helpful that come from blood tests and hormone tests. And you've alluded a couple times to genetic screens, um, and especially the 23 and me. And again, you already mentioned this, but we're going to set aside the concerns that many people have about whether or not there are identifying um, aspects of their health that are going into these large data sets and 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 whether or not people want to participate. We're just going to set that aside for this conversation because, again, that's a whole nother show. What we're going to focus on, though, is the usefulness of this kind of a test for the patient. So, so what what do these this these variety of tests show us that is worth noting? Sure. Yeah. So. Again, you know, you can break this out into the endocannabinoid genetics, you know, and then the nutritional stuff, you know, and, and sort of hormone metabolism, things like that. And, and so where I start to take a look at here is, you know, some of the things you can start to see is, you know, the cannabinoid receptor and, and you know, dopamine receptors and such. You know, you see, you see some genetic variants where, you know, these receptors are, are more responsive or less responsive. And that starts to set up, you know, are some patients... You're more likely to to you know become a little bit more hooked on you know habitual cannabis use. You know uh, they get the the reward seeking response from that a little bit, and they tend to to go down that pathway. So certainly that's something to be aware of. You know when you're taking a look and and that what you're going to provide from a formulation standpoint. You know so there's there's that aspect of it. You know we can also start to dig into you know some of these. Um, that you know drive the different aspects of the the cannabinoid system right so you can take a look at um, you know uh, fa you know fatty acid amide hydrolase you know magl another one as well too and to grade that and you know those enzymes kind of give a sense of how quickly you know these endocannabinoids hang around inside your um your your synapse the gap between your nerves on that as well too so again it just gives you a sense of what's the the 
resiliency of that system. So you can start to build out some sense of, of that. You know, certainly where I start to take a look at it is things like, you know, um, because most patients come in here. And again, I think your your comment a bit earlier on about how we tend to have a patient population that have exhausted other options. We tend to have a little bit more of the canaries in the coal mine. So certainly I tend to see some of the stuff that I also saw in my multiply chemically sensitive patients, which is that, you know, which is a very similar population in some respects, is that they have genetic variants and things like their ability to clear out these enzymes. For example, if we are these compounds, like let's talk about your caffeine example that you used. Some people genetically um, don't clear out caffeine well. Some do just fine, you know. And so, you know, these are you know. And again, I suspect that the people that are a little bit more sensitive to caffeine, um, you know, are are again sort of these people that have some of these genetic variants about clearance of cytochrome enzymes and that, and that may impact clearance of other medications and other substances. It's um, you know, again, a whole other conversation. We can talk about Google's, you know, uh, I think it's called Alpha One is their new artificial intelligence that looks at protein folding uh, on it. And it came up with some really interesting stuff, which is that, you know, sort of genes appear to organize in biochemical pathways, you know, so that, you know, they kind of support each other. So, um, like, for example, I did 23andMe, and it turns out that I'm genetically pre-programmed to have to have cod liver oil. Um, my Swedish and Swiss background pretty much uh, means that I don't do vitamin D terribly well. My vitamin A, I don't convert it from plants terribly well. And my oils, the the, hemp, the plant-based oils, uh, I can't really convert them into the, sort of the uh, omega-3 stuff that we find in fish oils. You know, but that that group of them, I've seen that repeatedly in patient populations that, you know, people of Northern European descent and things like that and some of the First Nations populations, you know, seem to have these things where their vitamin D and their, their essential fatty acids and fat-soluble vitamins seem to be tied together. And, uh, you know, we see this in other different elements as well, too. So that's that's a really cool element of it. And then we go down the pathway of things like, again, depending on what our patients are looking at. So you know, anxiety, stress, mood, depression, you know, chronic pain, I really start taking a look at a lot of the tryptophan stuff around this as well, too. There's some really interesting aspects because that ties in both with the B vitamins that we talked a little bit earlier about folic acid, B12, and B6 support, and then also the ability to convert, you know, the amino acid tryptophan into 5-hydroxytryptophan. And so there's some genetic variation on that, too. So these are the types of things that, you know, as you start to take a look, they show up and different platforms have different elements of it. I just use the 23andMe raw data and load that into a multiple of different, you know, genomic platforms to start to identify those. And, you know, there's, there's several of them that I use. Um, I'm, I'm working on one right now with another company to try and make a little bit more specific sort of functional cannabinoid medicine platform. And so hopefully we'll have that out in the next year or so. That's so. going to be popular. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I think it'd be interesting. I mean, the challenge is just trying to simplify this stuff down because, you know, again, it's, I realize I'm probably just, you know, people are kind of getting a fire hose effect right now and, and getting little snippets of it as well. But, um, but hopefully we could make it much more practical and, and patient friendly. So, and, and I, that, that idea of being overwhelmed by the details, like that's not lost on me, you know, like you're right. We are kind of moving around and there's a lot of vocabulary in this episode, but it's also true to life, right? I mean, like this is what it's like to be a patient like anybody who is still with us uh, on the episode, you know, you know, 
people have got to decide that they're going to care enough to learn the vocabulary if they are going to become captains of their own health. Um, we cannot have optimum health, let alone individualized cannabis medicine, in a Western healthcare system that is designed more to keep us on pharmaceuticals than it is to heal us and move us on our way. And so, you know, while while at certain times the vocabulary that you've used even, you know, um, washed me in new ideas. I'm like, oh, I've got I've got a long list of things that I'm going to Google when we're done here. But that's what it's like to be a patient. That that is what it's like. And so, mm-hmm. um. I think that cannabis patients probably more than most are used to this because we we've already talked about how cannabis patients are generally outliers because the rest of the medical system has given up on them and then they've so they've had to take their research into their own hands and so those are probably the people that this episode is is most targeted for because what we're giving I mean like you know, from helping enough of my friends, like I've got rheumatoid arthritis friends and um, and hypothyroid friends and all these folks, we there are little snippets throughout the episode where people are like, ooh, there's a new search term for me that I had not considered on whatever topic. And I think that's how self-empowered patients have to go about their medical education. So, so anyway, I agree mm-hmm. with you and I think it's par for the course. Yeah, well, and, and I, I, I would say again, you know, I mean, this is interesting because again, you know, when I take a look, I mean, I've been a naturopathic doctor now for graduated in 1998. And so, you know, I had, you know, undergraduate and naturopathic college as well with that for five years, you know, five years of naturopathic college, four years of undergraduate. You know, so I've kind of been steeped in this for a really long time in terms of this integrative alternative medicine. What we're talking about in, in cannabis medicine isn't new. I mean, this is something that sort of the holistic integrative medicine, I mean, you know, when I started off in, in this area, I mean, I remember going down and I, I grew up in Victoria on Vancouver Island. And I remember going down to uh, the, the Chinatown and getting Chinese herbal medicines and walking into this. And it was like, it was just, you know, the, the smells and, and this, you know, you're just like, oh my God, this is just so fascinating, you know, but, you know, there's a little Chinese fellow you know, giving me all these herbs, these wonderful herbs. And it was just, you know, and now we take a look and go into any, you know, sort of, you know, choices, you know, integrative pharmacy, whatever, and you see what the evolutions look like. And, and cannabis is, 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 you know, has the potential and just following that same course, but just at a very magnified effect, simply because the, the population behind that, that's driving it is, is, I think there's just pent up demand and suddenly it released. And so now it's moving. But I mean, the, what you're talking about with cannabis patients is exactly what I find in my patient population as non-cannabis. They're all very engaged. They're doing the research. I have these conversations with them. I mean, I, I never underestimate the capacity of my patients, you know, to understand the concepts that I'm giving them. It's if, if they're not getting it, it's because I'm not doing a good enough job explaining it. Right. You know, so I need to come back around and find out that language that's going there. And so I know that we've d- slipped into some jargon around that. But, you know, again, certainly, you know, we can, we, you, can, you can sort of dial that back in a lot of different ways. But it's, it's, it's patients being empowered. It's patients starting to look into this saying, look, you know, I don't, I don't, the current model is not serving us well. The symptom-oriented thing where we're just dealing with a symptom 
uh, is kind of the equivalent of, of, you know, pulling the batteries out of my smoke alarm while there's toast burning in my toaster, right? You know, it gets rid of the irritation on it, but there's still this underlying issue that's kind of happening here a little bit that needs to be addressed. And I think that's what patients are just struggling to find. And I, again, I don't, there's just a medical system that, that they're trained to look at that and it's like okay well i need to to you know I, I always joke with my patients a little bit it's like your doctor is concerned with you not dying they don't really care about how you feel about it right and 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 i don't mean that to be overly critical it means like look they've got more pressing things just make sure you're not dead the fact that you've got a little bit of body aches and pains because you're taking your stat and they're like well this is what it is at least you're not going to die of a heart attack right so the intention behind that is is caring and genuine and all the rest of that. It's just that, you know, what are they going to do about it? Like, what's the tool that they're going to have? I mean, the option for them is to put them on the medication, switch it around a little bit or stop it. You know, but, you know, again, all of us, I mean, even in this conversation, I mean, there's a deluge. I mean, this has been 20 years of experience that I've got locked up into my brain. I, I think that it would be unfair to expect someone else to try and have that same type of experience and be able to bring that to bear. You know, and so you do what you do. And just like, I don't know, I mean, you could, there's a billion different topics you could bring up that I'm like, mm, I don't know a whole hell of a lot about that one. I'm going to need to go do some work on that and talk to some people. So I think at the end of the day, you build a healthcare team of people, you become your best advocate, you know, you do your homework on this, you, you be inquisitive and curious, and you know, you persist. Uh, here on uh, Vashon, where uh, where I live, Vashon Island, um, about I don't know, gosh, has it been six years now? Um, we formed a uh, patient and cannabis enthusiast community social group here called Vimia, and you know we we continually use this term um, scrappy street medicine because mm -hmm. so many of the people who have come to endocannabinopathic, um, medicine because they were fringe and black swans and outside of the medicine by average, they have had to self teach. And certainly before Google, it was, you know, nearly impossible mm -hmm. to do this kind of research, but it's becoming easier and easier. And we all, have kind of embraced this idea that um, we work together to bring our pre-existing scrappy street medicine out of the bro science and into an understanding that you're talking about of integrative medicine that's been around for a while, but also has had the difficulty of not being incredibly popular or accessible to most people and and is not taught in regular school right and so mm -hmm. you know even though to you you know you've been studying this for over 20 years for most of us you know just simple stuff like including environmental medicine what what in your house is off gassing something can be mind blowing because a lot of people are taught that you know all the all the industrial manufacturing is fine you know mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. and so that's that's how i you know that's how a lot of the, a lot of folks come up right as as you know scrappy street medicine folks who then get access to professionals like you who are now more accessible to us in cannabis because it, you know you're not shamed and it's not as taboo to come on and on a podcast like this and and we get to hear some you know hints and best practices from somebody who's who's inside the specialty 
So mm-hmm. before we, before we wrap up and go to um, our next commercial break, uh, Chris, uh, were there any other tests that you wanted to make sure that you pointed out for caregivers or or um, patients that they'll want to take a look at for clues? We've you've mentioned uh, the blood tests, uh, hormone uh, tests, and the genetic screens so far. Sure. I think probably the last ones would be that what kind of touched on was the, the fats part of it. Right. You know, I mean, there's, there's some questionnaires that I use, you know, things like, you know, do you have dry skin, you know, uh, you know, what's with inflammation, you know, there's some different conditions that you can use to get a sense of, um, you know, with the, with the fatty acid statuses. I mean, and, and for the most part, if you've got dry scaly skin, that's always dry, you probably are pretty much deficient in fats. So there you go. Um, you know, you might take a look at things like vitamin D status. That's an easy test to run. You know, it has significant impacts, especially for for those of us, you know, up near the border and above the border here, you know, above the wall, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so so those are important things that I think are are elements of it. There's there's one last blood work test that I that I like. Is one called GGT. It's a, it's a liver enzyme. It's usually used to test for alcohol most doctors will look at if it's elevated and say you need to stop drinking and um but what it is actually is it's a really uh, it's a decent marker for something called glutathione which is a super important antioxidant um it's it's built out of an amino acid called n-acetylcysteine that actually is showing some real promise in things like helping with addiction and and you know neurotransmitters neuroplasticity brain health parkinson's you know antioxidant status you know this type of thing and i think that's that's one that i tend to check a lot and you know um, and i take a look at those numbers and it's one of those ones that even though the upper level of it is is fairly high there's been some interesting papers published that showed it's actually based on uh, insurance actuarial tables that show that you know sub optimal levels occur at much lower levels within the normal range of that as well too so that's a big one that i like to take a look at as well too awesome thank you so we're going to go ahead and take that second short break and be right back after the break um, we are going to go into uh, talking about uh, whole foods your diet and how you can support your endocannabinoid system through your food choices you are listening to shaping fire and my guest today is naturopathic physician chris spooner One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. 
If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out dynamico.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. With the National Hemp Program in flux due to stringent THC testing requirements, brothers Seth and Eric Crawford continue to release seeds to hemp farmers that will be legal, no matter how you grow them or when you test them. These new varieties from Oregon CBD seeds have substantial amounts of CBDV, CBGV, CBCV, and THCV while always staying below the 0.3% THC limit and guaranteeing compliant crops for farmers every time. Also, these new varieties cannot be pollinated by your neighbor's uncontrolled pollen or a rogue male in your own crop either. Oregon CBD seeds are non-GMO certified too. Oregon CBD Seeds was founded and funded in 2015 by Seth and Eric, maxing out their personal credit cards without outside investment. They continue to refuse outside investment that would change their company culture. Oregon CBD grows tons of fresh food on their research farms for local food banks, literally tons of food. They also give away tens of thousands of pounds of R&D flour to patients. As their company began to succeed, Seth and Eric started donating money to the cannabis medicine and hemp fiber cause too by giving millions of dollars to Oregon State University in order to establish the world's leading cannabis genomics research program. And they treat their employees right. Oregon CBD pays for full health and dental coverage for their employees, a 401k program, and their minimum starting wage is 20 bucks an hour. Plus, everyone shares food from the farms. Seth has been on Shaping Fire a few times to talk about novel cannabinoids. You can check out episodes 25 and 37 on CBD cultivars in the hemp market, episode 66 on triploid cannabis genetics, and the very first Shaping Fire Live, episode 47, with Seth and soil expert Jeff Lowenfels talking about autoflowers. If you are a hemp farmer and you want to grow reliable seeds that are sure to thrive and pass testing, check out OregonCBDSeeds.com to learn more about buying seeds for the 2021 season. That's OregonCBDSeeds.com. This message is for folks who grow cannabis. I'm talking to home growers, patients, and commercial growers too. I'm probably talking to you. When you plan out your next growing cycle, be sure to check out Humboldt CSI Seeds at HumboldtCSI.com. Caleb Inspecta and his family have lived in Humboldt County for over 100 years. For the last 40 years, three generations of his family have cultivated extraordinary Sensamia cannabis in Humboldt, Mendocino, and Trinity Counties. Because of his lineage and the hard-earned experience that comes from growing up smoking and sifting large populations of cannabis plants in Northern California, the seeds you'll cop from CSI will be winning genetics based on longtime heavy hitters and updated and resifted to bring out new and exotic traits and better yields. Go ahead and ask around. Caleb, also known as Inspecta and Pirates of the Emerald Triangle, is a breeder's breeder. He reaches way back and works with significant strains, recreating them in new and interesting ways.
ways that you'll love as a toker and a grower, as well as offering you some surprises that will delight serious seed traders and cultivators. Humboldt CSI goes a further step and selfs all these chemovars so you know all the seeds will be female. These are not experimental feminized seeds. Humboldt CSI releases some of the best female seeds available anywhere and it will show in your garden. Folks grew quite a bit of CSI Humboldt Gen X last year here on Vashon Island and everyone was pleased. The patients had beautiful female plants and didn't have to cull half of their garden as males. The folks growing for the fun of getting high grew colorful flowers with exceptional bag appeal and great highs. And breeders had 7 out of 7 females in a pack which gave them a lot of phenotypic choices. Take a moment right now and visit HumboldtCSI.com. You'll find an up-to-date menu of both feminized and regular lines along with photos and descriptions. That's HumboldtCSI.com. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Lose, and our guest this week is naturopathic physician, Chris Spooner. So, um, in the first two sets, we talked primarily about figuring out um, what might be the problem and how best and what kinds of cannabinoids that we want to introduce into your body um, for optimum benefit from your cannabinopathic care. And as we have sussed out that it can get really complex fast and the context for every single patient is slightly different. And so today's episode has so far has not been the same solutions for everybody. It's essentially, here are a bunch of things to consider, and then now you have to go on your own individualized path. Well, set three is going to be a little different because we're going to be talking about the foods that you can eat that um, generally strengthen your endocannabinoid system. And this is especially great, especially for folks who either want to round out their cannabis use with food that's going to um, support their endocannabinoid system, or folks who just can't really afford all the cannabinoids that they that they need, but they do have access to clean food. So, um, you know, we've we've talked in the past with Dr. Russo on an earlier episode about um, his seminal paper about um, uh, you know particular foods that strengthen the endocannabinoid system, but that has not been updated in a long time. And Chris, I know that you work with patients all the time both as a naturopath but also in your in your specificity of of the gut right and so you're talking about foods about the foods that they're eating all the time so why don't we start with the recommendations that you give your patient base on foods that they should eat for endocannabinoid health Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, I think we've touched on a lot of these things, you know, I think you probably get wouldn't be too surprising given our previous conversation. But um, I try, you know, patients sometimes prefer supplements, I prefer to try and get patients to do as much as food wise as they can uh, to start off with. And, and so I mean, I'd probably say for those of you that have been listening, you know, the first one I'd be going with is something like cod liver oil. I mean, most people it's, it's they're looking at it going like, well, that just sounds downright disgusting. But one of the things I really like about it is that it's got a couple things. It's got vitamin A and vitamin D in it, okay, which is is fantastic, you know. And so the, for those people that genetically aren't able to do it, it kind of bypasses, you know, that issue. And then you've got liver oil actually has a fair amount of what's called DHA in it, which is one of these essential fatty acids that's really helpful for brain health uh, and its partner, sort of EPA. 
um, is, is a bit of an anti-inflammatory. So I find that, you know, for those patients that are coming in with inflammatory illnesses or neurological stuff or, you know, um, inflammatory conditions like fibromyalgia and this type of thing, I mean, this is a good place to start, you know, arthritis, pain, you know, this type of thing, you know, so, you know, tablespoon of cod liver oil, uh, gets you your A's and your D's, your fat-soluble vitamins and those important essential fatty acids, you know. And it's, again, we could certainly dig down deeper into the science behind why that is and whatever. But, you know, I mean, we, we do see that, you know, omega-3 deficiencies definitely really impact, you know, sort of endocannabinoid, uh, you know, particularly uh, the neuronal functions as well, too, but also synergizes quite nicely through the anti-inflammatory effects. So it synergizes really nicely with things like CBD, so that, that would be probably one of the first ones I'd be taking a look at there as well, too. Um, the next one that I'm super fascinated by is this whole concept of the microbiome, right? You know, and uh, and so what I think that you start taking a look at here is this whole, uh, I forget what the paper was here. I'm just going to pull it up here real quick. It was, um, yeah, endocannabinoids, the crossroad between the gut microbiota and host metabolism. It was actually published in Nature, I think, in 2016, a super fascinating article about this that talks about the role of the microbiome and actually how it impacts a lot of liver pathology. Um, I don't know. I, I suspect this isn't something that shows up on everybody's radar, but uh, is it in epidemic proportions here, right? And, and we always attributed that with alcohol use. Well, it turns out it actually has a pretty significant component of you know, disruptions in the gut microbiome, and that seems to be impacted by endocannabinoids, interestingly enough. So uh, taking a look at what's happening within that, that, you know, gut bacteria within the digestive tract, I think is hugely important. And, you know, again, I could go on and on about the the trials and tribulations and the disrespect shown to our, our hepatic liver <laughs> system. Um, but but I, I won't, I won't stand up for them on that soapbox right now. But I certainly think, you know, uh, anything that supports the bacteria in your gut, um, and that would be something like, you know, a probiotic. If you want to go down, you know, the foods that you would be looking at, you'd be taking a look at fermented foods, you know, um, you know, your sauerkrauts, your yogurts, you know, these types of things uh, that, that really, they do two things. One, they supply bacteria. And, and again, it's there's a lot of subtleties in the quality of probiotics and that, that certainly again we could go on long and on but suffice it to say a lot of the fiber and a lot of the like the the fermented byproducts so for example in yogurt and milk products uh, the sugar lactose is composed of galactose and, and glucose well you can get what's called the galacto oligosaccharide which turns out to be very helpful for the gut microbiome and that's produced in yogurt you know, along with sort of the, the fermentation products and the sort of pH altering effects of that, the lactic acid. So I think fermented foods, you know, if you're dairy sensitive or things like that, you could take a look at other different fermented foods in there. But I think that's a super important thing. And also uh, a lot of people who are sensitive to dairy foods like I am actually are okay with the fermented ones. So like, you know, you won't see me drink in a glass of milk, but yeah. I can totally handle uh, quality yogurt. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially if you get like a grass fed yogurt. And why is that? Well, it actually dovetails with the types of fats. Grass fed animals have different omega-3 uh, you know, fatty acid profiles in their milk that are skewed to the more beneficial ones too. So there's a double whammy with stuff like that. So if you could certainly tolerate a grass fed yogurt, 
um, great, fantastic. You know, goat's yogurt is probably another one that you could look at if you're if you're not too averse to goaty flavors. But uh, you know, you go from there. So, so that would be something that I think are definitely things you can involve in there. Um, fiber is super important. You know, especially for large bacteria. This is again, I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole, but let's just suffice it to say that your gut bacteria is not the same below the stomach as it is in the large intestine. It varies significantly in the types of bacteria, you know, what they do and what they produce and what they eat. And the ones that we really want to emphasize, going back to that conversation about butyrate, um, that's, you know, again, adding things like oat bran and psyllium husks and things like that. Those are the two big ones that I recommend on a regular basis. But anything that's, you know, you could add, you know, healthy fibers into it. And again, some people have sensitivities around gluten and this type of thing. So, you know, this is where, you know, again, a gluten-free oat or something along those lines might be something to consider there. You know, rice brands can be part of that that start to bypass that as well too. But getting in those, those fibers that the bacteria can start to work on and produce some of these really important compounds I think is really, really important. And again, you know, we could spend hours talking about that. But I think if I were to make those three recommendations to patients, that would be it. As a dietary strategy overall, I tend to encourage patients to move more towards that paleo, keto type end of things. And, and this is recognizing that not all diets, there's a lot of caveats that go in this. And certainly I'm not of the view of, you know, paleo means eat red meat and bacon and cream. Uh, it means, you know, Mediterranean type diets, you know, olive oils, healthy oils, fish, avocado, you know, coconut oils, you know, um, organic safflower, sunflower oils, flax oils, those types of things, healthy nuts and seeds, you know, and again, I think most people would be like, yeah, it sounds like a healthy diet. I should probably do some more of that. So if you're really trying to improve your endocannabinoid tone, that's where I'd be leading. And that's where I send most of my patients. And then so that, like, let's look at the opposite, right? You mentioned earlier, um, the idea of, you know, having the heating on in your house, but then having the window open. So yeah, you might be heating your house, but all the good it's doing is just going right out the window. And I see that so often when I go to conventions and, you know, people are all you know, talking about, you know, cannabis medicine and patients, and then we break for lunch and I watch these people eating like the, the crackiest, you know, fast food. And I'm like, oh, you know, essentially they're leaving their window open, right? They, they know mm -hmm. about health, but then they're actually putting you know, um, tinder into their, um, into their body instead of like nice long burning logs. Right. Um, exactly. so, so will you speak a little bit to, um, the harm that processed foods do to the endocannabinoid system? Because yeah, we want to increase the quality of the foods we are eating, but at the same time, we really should be getting rid of these other foods that are actually causing damage to the endocannabinoid system at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and again, most people when they see a naturopathic physician, they're pretty much being, well, he's going to take me off sugar, dairy, and wheat. <laughs> <laughs> so I might as, well, might as well fit the stereotype and don't do that. Um, but, uh, but no, definitely, I think when you take a look at particularly your processed foods, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a number of different things that come into it. I mean, um, and there's uh, maybe uh, there's a couple of reasons that might surprise people. If anybody wants an interesting read on it, there's a book. Um, sugar salt fat that talks about you know sort of the fast food industry and the processed food industry 
you know, and, and it was essentially a, an investigative journalist that had heard that a lot of the foods, you know, big companies, General Mills, Nabisco and all that got together. And one of them was kind of saying, like one of the individuals was being like, look, we may be kind of moving into cigarette territory here where suddenly it's going to become apparent that there were some real health benefits that we kind of knew about that we kind of pushed. And so it's a fascinating read, but aside from the fact that something like, you know, your hydrogenated fats and your trans fats, the, the problem is, is that these fats are odd lengths. Like when you're taking a look at essential fatty acids, you know, they're, you know, 16, 18, 20, 22 carbon molecules strung together with different bends. You know, the omega-3, for example, talks about you have a bend in the fat. If you think of it as a pipe cleaner, there's a bend at, you know, the third carbon in. You know, whereas an omega-6, it's the sixth carbon in. So these hydrogenated fats have have these bends and these lengths that are, are just odd. Your system doesn't quite know what to do with it. So you know, I, I kind of liken it to gumming up the works. So when you're putting these fats into your body, suddenly you're getting this odd kind of, you know, your body's like, what do I do with this? And what do I make with it? And so when we, you know, extend this to the thing of like, hey, omega-3 deficiencies have impacts on your endocannabinoid tone because some of the important endocannabinoids are associated with those. Well, if you start throwing more of these fats and they start to predominate in your system, then that starts to become problematic. You know, uh, sugars and things like that. It's not so much. I mean, you know, heaven forbid, I you know, I can be a bit of a chocoholic myself at times as well, too. You know, so I think there's an important balance. You know, I kind of use the 80-20 rule. You know, 80% of the time I'm good. 20% of the time I enjoy stuff. You know, and, you know, I like a nice, you know, something tasty every once in a while. So I, I try not to be too obsessive about it. But, you know, as your health challenges mount up that becomes less and less over time but i think arguably you know some of the larger issues that we see in the context of health you know inflammation insulin blood glucose issues are there so carbohydrates start to become super important and really trying to making sure that we're getting our our carbohydrates that have a lot of fiber and the analogy that you use like a quick burning piece of newspaper in your fireplace burning a log you know, there's a difference between a, a steel-cut oat versus oat flour, which I equate to similar type of burn times, you know. So I think trying to get your carbs as unrefined, as unprocessed, as whole as possible is, is where I would be suggesting that way as well, too, to help limit those blood sugar swings and those insulin response and thereby, you know, probably being at the base of the pyramid. I think your 80-20, you know, it fits for so many things. But in this case, I think that most folks are probably 80% eating questionable food and 20% eating healthy food, but really remembering the 20% that was good. And so, mm -hmm. you know, most folks seem to be kind of out of touch. It's amazing the power of a food journal to really get to the bottom of what you're eating. Every single time in my life that I have done a food journal, I have been shocked and disappointed in myself for what I'm actually eating in real life versus what I think I'm eating. Yeah. And that's something I do with patients all the time. I give a minimum of a two week diet diary with all of my patients. And it's not so much, you know, and, and I, I can do all sorts of different things. I do like interventional pain management. I can stick needles in people's backs and joints and things like that. And they'll be like, yeah, and ask them to stop you know, do a diet diary, you, you'd think I was, you know, trying to remove one of their limbs or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's challenging, but I tell them, it's like, look, this isn't really for me. Most patients usually after about a week or so start getting the general gist and they start modifying their diet all by themselves. And really a, a sneaky little trick I do is I just keep on giving them diet all by themselves. You dropped out there right there. What was the thing? What was the very last thing you said? Yeah. Usually I just give them diet diaries for 
three, four weeks and they just start making changes all by themselves. Oh, good. You know, I, I don't even need to tell them anything. They're like, they know what they need. It becomes so apparent themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a co- corollary to the sugar, of course, is <clears throat> alcohol. So um, how will using alcohol, like processed food, degrade our endocannabinoid system? Yeah, I, I think, again, alcohol, there's a context to it. I mean, it depends on the type of alcohol and how much you're drinking. I mean, we've got the French paradox where, you know, a glass of red wine and things like that's not really too much of an issue. And in fact, you know, there may be some health benefits because it helps you relax and unwind and, and things like that as well, too. Um, but some people, again, genetically have problems uh, metabolizing alcohol. Uh, and so that can be an issue. And, and certainly we know, I mean, my general experience, and this comes from my environmental medicine stuff, is that things like alcoholism and that there, there, there was some really interesting stuff that we saw around serotonin, tryptophan metabolism and that in there. So again, there's that intersection. So I don't, I don't know exactly where it all in there. And, and, but I do tell patients like, look, you know, let's take a look at your alcohol consumption, because again, you could potentially, you know, limiting your resiliency, resili- you know, because you're starting to consume bandwidth in your endocannabinoid tone through these these disruptions in serotonin pathways, and then these also little metabolites that your body has to uh, to clear out as well too. I think that the next issue that starts to become problematic in that is that I find that a lot of stuff. Some a lot of patients have going to the gut microbiome like yeast issues, and it's not uncommon to see patients have sort of sensitivity to yeasts. Uh, in uh, because of, of you know like you know particularly and no no disrespect to the craft beer industry but they tend to have a little bit more yeasty type stuff in there as well too so I see sometimes that's a problem so I tend to watch tell patients you know with a lot of GI issues to to watch out for for stuff with high yeast contents and whether that's craft beers or homemade wines or things like that so that's that's another option of it as well too to get them to consider. Right on. So, so let's do a little summary here before we wrap up there, Chris. So, you know, as we've already recognized, we were a little, I don't know, we, we were kind of like shooting like shotgun pellets, right? Kind of a little bit scattered, but, but we covered a wide breadth of area so that hopefully we were able to provide new search terms and new, I don't know, paradigms, new ideas, new approaches mentally uh, for both caregivers who are intaking a new patient and want to help them with their endocannabinoid system, as well as self-directed, you know, cannabis enthusiasts who are trying to do it better. And so, you know, there's kind of something for everybody in this show, but to kind of summarize it, what are your, I'm going to ask you for recommendations for two different kinds of listeners. What would, what is, would be kind of your summary recommendation for someone coming to use cannabis medicine or food for health for the first time? And then what are the recommend your recommendations for long-term cannabis users who already, you know, are using cannabinoids, but they want to be more effective. Right. So as a clinician, the thing that I, as you probably got, I, I like lots of information, right? And I think the the more we understand about, you know, what we're using and what we're dealing with, that helps inform our decision-making process and helps us make better decisions. So, uh, you know, for someone who's new to cannabis, you know, who's, um, you know, wh- where would I start? You know, again, obviously, you know, we're taking a look at what's your overall health, you know, uh, what, what is it that we're dealing with? Are you looking at inflammatory conditions? Are you looking at gut engine? So, so 
get get your medical records get you know review what's going on here a little bit try and get a sense of okay you know what's my overall health looking like um and then dietary wise you know spend some time and, and just do the basic nutritional stuff you know take a look at that you know clean up the diet you know get some exercise going optimize your potential these are these are really basic things you know and, and there's lots of different tools that are out there there's apps and fitness bits and things like that so i certainly encourage patients to do that um when it comes down to the cannabis itself which we we haven't really touched on yet but i think this is this answer because kind of goes into where i suggest both my more experienced cannabis patients uh, which i would give the same recommendations to as the new patients but from a cannabis standpoint is know what you're getting like i think the biggest issue that i see here is that and we don't know what's in it. We don't know the ratios of your CBD, your THC, the terpene profiles. You don't know how it's being extracted, what's there with it as well, too. So, you know, know what's going into your bodies. And if I were to summarize everything that we're talking about, whether it's diet or whether it's cannabis, it's like, know what you're doing. Get your information. Understand what it is that you're eating, what you're doing, what the food, what's in your food. Understand what's in your cannabis and and, and get that and be, and be thorough about it. Be, you have to be your own advocate and, you know, knowledge is power. Fantastic. Well, Chris, thank you so much for spending your time and your expertise with us. You know, when uh, Dr. Russo uh, recommended uh, you to me after, after I initiated a conversation with individualized cannabis medicine uh he's all you know you really need to check out my friend uh, chris up in canada and and you know i saw who you were on the internet but then when we started talking i'm like holy hell this guy has got really unique information that i haven't seen elsewhere and that has been my experience today so i really appreciate both your expertise and um and your good cheer Thank you so much. It's uh, it's been a real pleasure. I've I've really enjoyed this. So thank you so much. Excellent. Well, I hope you uh, will come back another time. So absolutely. So if you want to uh, connect with Chris or just find out more about his practice, uh, you can reach out to him at paradigmnaturopathic.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shangolos on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.